Some years ago, they began to change television to different types of genre, and they came up with something called the makeover. And that's, I think, kind of continued to this day, although I honestly don't know for sure because I'm not into that sort of thing. But uh, they have fixer-upper homes. I know they have that. My wife watches some of those. But that's kind of a makeover, take an old home and fix it up. And there are a lot of shows like that. But when it comes to people, they had a program, I think it was called Extreme Makeover. And they would take a snaggletooth woman with wrinkled skin and spaghetti hair, and they'd turn her into a runway model. Or the balding, beer-bellied fellow with a nose like Jimmy Durante, and they'd turn him into Leonardo DiCaprio. I... um, I was trying to come up with a, a name that would resonate with our younger people. I don't know if our younger people even know who that is. It, it, things travel so, change so quickly. I, I went on the internet yesterday to try to figure out who the hot guys are these days. <laughs> and, um, and there's one list of 20. And I only recognize one name on it. The others were strange. And I won't mention that one name because I'm really not a fan of this fella from uh, some place where I have citizenship as well as here. Uh, don't only like to mention his name. But anyway, kind of a bad guy sort of fella. Anyway, you know, they, they want to change somebody from an ugly duckling into a beautiful swan or from a caterpillar into a butterfly. And it's amazing what they can do with a bit of makeup and a nose job and uh, fixing up their hair or a wig or something, putting hair on someone who doesn't have hair. Uh, they can change the looks of an individual. But there's one thing they cannot change, and that's the human heart. Man can have his heart changed to some degree. We look at Nebuchadnezzar. God worked with him in a way that turned his heart from one to another. But in terms of a makeover of an individual, the inward man, only God can do that. Have you ever considered that God also wants each of us to have an extreme makeover? He's in the makeover business in reality. And he too turns ugly ducklings into beautiful swans and caterpillars into beautiful butterflies. We're talking here about the inward man, not the outward man. When we look at Israel coming out of Egypt, we had a sermonette just now on what we believe happened on the last day of unleavened bread, and that is that the children of Israel walked through the Red Sea. That is a tradition. That is what we do believe. Uh, it makes sense when you understand God's plan and how he works and has special days. And we have two special days during the Days of Unleavened Bread. They walk through the Red Sea on that uh, evening or that, that night of the last day of Unleavened Bread. And the New Testament tells us that there was some significance to that. Let's notice that over in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. And I think that most of our old-timers know what we're talking about here. But 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. And for those of you who are younger, 
Uh, we have younger people here who are 8 and 10 and 12 years of age. I'm not just talking about teenagers. I hope that they catch these things. But even the younger ones, there are things you can understand. And here's one of them. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1, it says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. You see, they had a cloud hanging over them to protect them. There was a pillar of fire at night, but at, uh, during the day it protected them, a cloud protecting them. And they walked through the Red Sea as it parted for them to be able to walk on dry ground. And this wasn't the shallow reed sea as some like to point out and, and show that uh, it was just a, a few feet of water. You wouldn't drown people in a few feet of water. This was something that was... Uh, deep enough that when the waters came crashing back down, it drowned all the Egyptians. And some of them were no doubt good athletes, but they couldn't swim that well and that far when the waters came crashing down. But they were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So it was a type of baptism. It typed what we did when we were baptized. And the similarities are are obvious. First of all, it's dealing with water. Secondarily, it's a grave. And when we picture baptism, what we're picturing is the death of the old man. And for Israel, their old way of life was being left behind, and they were going into the water, and they were coming out to a new land, into a totally new way of life. But there's something about this passage It says they ate the same spiritual drink, I'm sorry, spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual uh, drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. He was the, the rock. He was the God who led Israel out of Egypt. But verse 5 says, with most of them, God was not well pleased for their uh, bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, it is interesting that when you look at Israel coming out of Egypt, they were living in a place that was representative of sin. They were living under harsh bondage. And God rescued them, and he brought them out of that bondage of sin. You see, sin is bondage. That's one of the lessons that we should learn here on these days of unleavened bread, that it is bondage. You break God's law, and it brings hardship on you. It it puts you in bondage. If you you start using drugs or smoking or uh, excessive alcohol, you become a slave to it. And it's a harsh taskmaster because the effects, the end results are harsh and painful. They came out of that bondage, but their greatest trials were yet ahead. And there's a lesson here for us. It's awfully easy for us to look at baptism as though it is an end in itself. I've got to get baptized. I want to get baptized. Especially people who are young, especially people who grew up in the church. They think that, well, I I want to be baptized and I'll be a full member of the church and I can get married and I can, you know, whatever. Uh, All the things that they think. And yet, it's not the end. And for those of us who might be a little bit older, well, actually, I was baptized fairly young, but for those who come into the church 
as I did from the world, and we see what the world is like, and we want to put that world behind, and we want to come up to a, a new way of life, it's easy for us to think that, well, if I'm just baptized, my sins are forgiven, we move forward, and everything's going to be peaches and cream after that. And yet when we look at the history of Israel, when did the majority of the Israelites die? It was all after they came out, after their baptism. That was the struggle that they had. That was the difficult time that they had. Let's notice some of the things that they went through. And let's consider that, as I said, God is in the extreme makeover business. He's changing our hearts and our minds. If we are pliable, if we are helpful in that process, if we are uh, willingly going through the process, God can change us. And he does. And I hope that you can look back over your life however many years it's been since you came into the church, and you can see progress. I know I look around at some people I've known from past years, and it's it's really wonderful. I was telling my wife not long ago how wonderful it is to see this person really growing, making progress. This is not the same person that he or she was before. And it's it's wonderful to see that. But I think sometimes we ourselves really wonder if we are making progress. We sometimes struggle with the same problems, the same sins, the same bad habits. Sometimes we fast about something and we get up from the fast and then we do the very thing that we were trying to overcome. Maybe it's being cranky or ornery or not being very nice to your mate. And yet you know that That's what you were trying to overcome. Well, let's look at some of the things that happened there with Israel. Because baptism is not the end. Yes, it's a goal, but it's not the end of our our passage to the kingdom of God. Man focuses on the outward appearance. This is true in religion as much as physical appearance. When a young person is looking for someone to be a lifelong uh, mate, physical appearance is very important. And yet the inner person in the long run is going to be far more valuable. And I think that all of us have experienced where we meet somebody and we think, well, that's pretty ordinary. But you get to know them and they become more and more beautiful. We've also met the type where you look at this person, if you're a guy, and you say, wow, what a knockout she is, until you get to know her, and she's not so pretty. It's amazing how that works, at least for some of us it works that way. I I don't know, with some it it seems like it's only physical and that's it. There's got to be a combination, doesn't there? There has to be some sort of an attraction, but that inner person is what really matters in the long run. When it comes to religion, we see that the Pharisees were looking at the the outward appearance. They were always concerned about how they appeared to other people. And so in Matthew, the 23rd chapter, we find that they were able to do the physical things that were easy, but the hard things 
they left out. So we notice in Matthew 23 and verse 23, it says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. In other words, they were very diligent in tithing, which they should have been diligent in tithing, but that was an end in itself. If we just tithe them, we've got it all made. Uh, and it says, and have neglected the weightier matters of law, those things are, which are much more difficult, justice, mercy, and faith. I understand that for some people, tithing can be a difficult uh, thing to, to do. Uh, nevertheless, for most people, especially the people that grew up in that type of environment where that's what everybody did, uh, they would get all concerned about little mint leaves and seeds and that sort of thing. But the weightier man is the law, justice, mercy, and faith, those are spiritual, you might say, and those aren't so easy to have. I mean, you can have justice, that's true. You can have mercy and, and you can have faith to, to a degree. But those are things that don't always show up when you can show that, well, I, I give thus and such to the church or I do this or that. He says, these ought you to have done, justice, mercy, and faith, without leaving the others undone. So both are important. But the weightier of the matter of this law were what they should have been doing. He says, blind guides, verse 24, who strain out at, at a gnat or a gnat and swallow a camel. You worry about the little things in such a way, but then you do something that is far, far, far greater and something that's wrong. He says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. It reminds me of physical appearance when I was at uh, Ambassador College. For the guys, you, you try to get by as, as easily as you can on some things. Now, my mother taught me how to iron, and I can iron a shirt, and sometimes do, especially if my wife is out of town, I'll iron my own shirts. But we, we had a, a habit there at college among some of us that well, you just, you just iron the front of it. That's all you needed. As long as you keep your jacket on, forget about the rest of it. You didn't have to do anything else. Maybe the collar you wanted to get done. Or polishing shoes. Just hit the front of them. Nobody's going to notice the back of them, but if the front's nice and shiny. You know, those are things that we, we as human beings sometimes do, don't we? Now, I'm not going to say that it would ever be wrong just to iron the, you know, the fronts if you're running late, something happens, uh, you spill something on, on the shirt you have, and so you've, you know, there, there's a time for all things. But the, the point is that we do a lot of things, don't we, just for show, instead of seeing it all. I remember Dr. Hay walking by one day. I was cleaning the top of an awning. I was told I was supposed to do that, among other things. And as he walked by, he said, you can't see up there, can you? Well, I could see. I mean, but he was saying from his level, you can't see up there. I said, well, no, sir. And I don't remember exactly what he said. Bottom line was God sees. God could see the top there. He could see that it was clean. Now, there's probably a greater purpose than that is so that you get all the, the junk off the top, you know, the dust and everything. So when it does rain, which it does occasionally Southern California wouldn't all come down on top of somebody dirty water, so I guess there's a purpose there. But 
he was making a point that we don't do things just to be seen of other individuals. We do what is right. And I was doing what I was told to do in that particular case. I was a custodian. And um, that was part of my job at that on that day. Uh, if we look a little further, he said that the, you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. He knew that they'd take care of the outside, but clean the inside first. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, verse 27, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly. They would paint the outside of them. They were like that, he is saying, not that they were doing the whitewashing. Uh, and they indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous. This is the point of it. You appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So, even in religion, there's a tendency to look good to others, but if God looks into the heart and the mind, it may not be there. God focuses on the inward man. Humanly speaking, we focus on the outside. Notice over in Proverbs 31, the um, virtuous woman, last chapter of Proverbs, and verse 25, speaking of the virtuous woman, it says, Strength and honor are her clothing. Strength and honor. She shall rejoice in times to come. Verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom. And on her tongue is the law of kindness. This is the virtuous woman. And then in verse 30 it says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing. But a woman who fears the eternal, she shall be praised. Beauty is passing. It leaves. You think that fellow has a beautiful head of hair? He might be the first one to lose it. I've, I've seen a lot of good heads of hair in my days that are more bald than I am and went that way a lot quicker. And I always had a high forehead. If you look at my college pictures, I took me a long time to think that I, my wife kept saying I was losing hair and I, I didn't think I was because I looked the same as I always did. But, but I'm beginning to notice it now, especially if I see myself from the side. But I always had a high forehead and I saw these guys with Beautiful heads of hair, and you know, kind of like uh, Mr. Rod McNair, and, and but but they lost it. I think he's going to he's going to be like a Ronald Reagan. He's going to keep that hair the, the whole time. Um, one time at camp, they photoshopped his hair on my head. It, <laughs> I don't know if that thing is still running around any place, but it didn't work. I don't know why, but somehow it just didn't work. Well, you know, beauty leaves. And you see a couple who've been married 50 or 60 or 70 years, and maybe they're not walking very fast, and they're holding hands, and they you can tell that they really love each other and respect each other and are madly in love with each other. And you look at them and you think, well, boy, I wonder why she chose him, or I wonder why he chose her, because they don't look so good. 
but they look wonderful to each other. It's the inward part that counts. Over in 1 Samuel 16, we're familiar with this passage, but again, even some of our younger uh, folks can learn from some of these things. 1 Samuel, the 16th chapter, there was a king by the name of Saul who disqualified himself from ruling over Israel. And so in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Now, Jesse had apparently seven sons, and so uh, Samuel goes to uh, visit with uh, Jesse. And in verse 6, it says, It was when he came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. He looked at this uh, strong, apparently uh, stately individual. He just looked kingly to him. And he thought, wow, this has got to be the one. This is the king. But, verse 7, the Eternal said to Samuel, Do not look at his outward appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Eternal does not look or does not see a man as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Eternal looks at the heart. Think about the people that we vote for. I say we. We don't vote, but think of the people that are voted into office. Oftentimes it's how good they look, isn't it? Take a look at Fox News and look at the the ladies they have there. They're all knockouts. Why? They, They realize that people are going to watch more. They like eye candy. And that's what you see there. I'm not saying that some of them aren't intelligent, uh, but it it is interesting, isn't it? If you really want to make it in the news, it helps to be decently looking. Now, for some reason with guys, it's different. There's a fellow up in Canada by the name of um, Rex, uh, what is Rex? uh, Murphy, yeah, Rex Murphy. Now, Everybody's probably seen Larry King. Well, he makes Larry King look really good. Uh, he, he is, he's industrial strength homely. And he's got big eyes. But he makes it because he's absolutely brilliant and he knows how to use the English language. Even when you don't understand what he's saying, it's colorful. He's, he's, he's bright. But it's hard for for ladies to make it. Sometimes guys will make it that way, but it's kind of hard for the ladies to make it, isn't it? Because we look at outward appearance so much in this physical life. Verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at the appearance, his appearance, or his stature, for God doesn't look as man does. Verse 8, So Jesse called Abinadab, and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Well, neither has the Lord chosen this one. God hadn't chosen that one. And then he had Shammah pass, 
And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. I guess he had eight uh, there. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Eternal has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Well, is this all you have? Are all the young men here? He said, Well, there remains yet another one, the youngest, and he's out there keeping the sheep. We didn't even think it was worth bringing him in. And so Samuel said to Jesse, well, send to, to bring him, for we'll not sit down uh, till he comes here. So he came, and he was good-looking. He had bright eyes. He was good-looking. But he probably didn't look kingly at that point in time. He might have looked a little bit too young, maybe not tall enough, whatever the reason was. You definitely have the idea that he, he was not the first choice. In fact, he was the last choice. And so Samuel then anointed him. Over in the New Testament, we find in Acts 13 and verse 22, the reason why God chose him, I think it's obvious already, but let's just read it very quickly, Acts 13:22. It says, And when he had removed him, he raised up from them David, we're breaking into a thought as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. What was the problem with Saul? He didn't do God's will. David, for whatever faults he had, and we know that he was not a perfect man, but nevertheless, as a general statement, it says here, who will do all my will. He was willing to do what God wanted him to do what God told him to do. And he was one who sought God's will, one who studied to understand God's will. He didn't study to figure out, well, how can I get away with this? Or there's no law against this, or uh, God doesn't say it's wrong, so therefore it must be okay. No, he was one who wanted to do God's will. And sometimes, oftentimes, God's will is not our will. In fact, I guess we could say that's, the case a lot of times, isn't it? What we want to do is not necessarily what God wants us to do. But David was striving to do God's will. He was seeking God constantly, looking into God's law and what was the right way to do things. In Romans, the second chapter, Romans 2 and verse 28 Romans 2, verse 28, it says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. In the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So even circumcision is not... To be outward. It is inward. Doesn't mean that it's wrong to be physically circumcised for men, not women, but for men. But nevertheless, and there are some good reasons for it, but nevertheless, what God is looking for is a circumcised heart. This is not something that is new to the scriptures. It's not a New Testament doctrine. Go back to Deuteronomy, the 10th chapter. Deuteronomy 10. I have a little chain reference here. Chain reference simply means when you turn to a scripture, 
you have a, another scripture after that, and you go to that scripture, and then it goes to another one, another one, another one. Just write in where you want to go with a certain symbol for the topic. I have UH uh, for uncircumcised heart. But notice in verse 16, here it is in the Old Testament. It says, therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. This is at the end of the 40 years, and he is saying, be stiff-necked no longer. Have a circumcised heart. My chain reference takes me to chapter 30, verse 6, chapter 30, and verse 6. He says, and the Lord, or the Eternal, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Eternal, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. I have another reference here to Jeremiah 4, verse 4. So you can go through here and you see that from the law to the prophets, we find that God wants us to have a circumcised heart. And that applies to men and women. Chapter 4 and verse 4 of uh, Jeremiah. It says here, Circumcise yourselves to the eternal and take away the foreskins of your hearts, you men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Now, there are a couple other scriptures, but I won't turn to those. I think we get the point. This was an Old Testament, Old Covenant doctrine as much as a New Covenant doctrine. But let's go over to Colossians, the second chapter. And here we have a connection with circumcision and baptism. Colossians, the second chapter, and verse 11. Here it says, in him, this is breaking into a thought again, in Christ, you you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So circumcision of the heart is to get rid of the sins, the, the, the sins that, that we have in our, our bodies and in our minds. Bearing them or buried with him, with Christ, in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working God who raised him from the dead. So there's a connection here that we are circumcised of heart when we put to death the old man, the old sinful self. In the New Testament, we find that baptism is an essential. And physical circumcision is, uh, it's okay, but it's not required, uh, certainly of the Gentiles, as we, um, as we see in Acts the 15th chapter. Now, God focuses on the inward man. The question is, do you? Do you? Do I? Do we look at the inward man more than the outward man? And I guess we all have to answer that for ourselves and the tough part of that is that the heart's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It's hard for us to, to evaluate ourselves, isn't it? That's what we've been doing the last week. We've been trying to evaluate ourselves, or leading up to Passover especially. We're trying to find those areas of our lives that we need to change. And if we're not finding something we need to change, there's something wrong. Because God is trying to 
make us over. He is trying to change. He's trying to put to death the old way of doing things, the old man, and bring us up to a totally new way of life, just as Israel left Egypt behind and came up to a new world. The problem is that mentally, spiritually, they didn't. It was all a physical leaving of Egypt. Back in Numbers, the 11th chapter, Numbers 11, we find one of the problems that Israel had. Uh, It's not hard to find problems that Israel had. But remember that uh, Numbers covers that 39 years. After the first year they came out, it covers essentially 39 years. And he gives us some information there in the first nine chapters, and then it starts the journeys. And here we have the the children of Israel just starting out. Um, Notice in, in chapter 11, verse 1, Now when the people complained, it displeased the Eternal, for the Eternal heard it. And his anger was aroused so that the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and when Moses prayed to the Lord, the the fire was quenched. So he called the name of the place Taborah, because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. Now the mixed multitude, verse 4, who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? So they they have one problem, and fire burns some on the outskirts of the camp, and and God intervenes and stops it. And the next thing you read is that this mixed multitude that went up out of Egypt, all of a sudden they're looking back on, how come we don't have fish to eat? What about those cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic? We need all those things. This manna that God had given to them, and this is relatively early in the uh, their history, uh, that uh, period of time out there, uh, they were already tired of the manna. Now it says that, verse 8, the people went out about and gathered it, ground it on millstones and beat it in the mortar, cooked it in pans and made cakes of it, and its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but I love pastry. And I I think that sounds pretty good. However, that being said, if you eat anything long enough, it gets old, doesn't it? Can you remember when you were young and you thought that nothing tasted better than a French fry? I remember that. I thought French fries were the greatest food ever been made. I also thought that those... Pies that you buy in a little quickie store, such as they were back then. They were not all these nice stores we have now. They're wrapped up in something, and they may have been sitting on the shelf for four years. I always thought those tasted good, too. Actually, I didn't get tired of those from eating too many French fries, maybe. I still like French fries, but it's not the same as it once was. I love avocados. In fact, when my wife is gone, I go to the grocery store and buy avocados, and I have one or two a day. Just love avocados. But even avocados, if you eat enough of them, can get old. They, they, they lose what's special about them. And apparently the, the manna became old to them. And they wanted 
flesh to eat. They wanted meat. Somebody was telling me the other day, this is rather interesting, when you go into some of the nicer restaurants, they don't ask you about your, your main course the way that they might have at one time. They don't say, what kind of meat do you want? They say, what kind of protein do you want? And that's to satisfy the animal rights crowd. And more and more I see it, especially here in in Charlotte, you know, they got this uh, on 74 as you're going toward town. They got a vegan hotel. They got a vegan restaurant across the street. It's, everything's vegan, and so it's it's easy to upset these folks. So they they call it protein. What kind of protein do you want? Uh, I'm waiting for the next time somebody asks me that. At any rate, I'll be nice. I'll embarrass my wife, but I'll be nice. <laughs> Uh, just kill the cow or, you know, go, go, go get a chicken and chop its head off. I'll take that. <laughs> um, they're just doing their job. They're just being told to do that. They probably are meat eaters themselves. But anyway, it'd be, it'd be fun. So um, anyway, we, we see here that they're, they're complaining. And so God gave them meat not just for a day or for a week or two weeks or three weeks, but for a whole month. He provided quail for them. But just seeing their attitude, seeing how they were going about it and and how they were lusting after uh, this flesh, uh, God plagued them even when they were still eating it. So it says the people, verse 32, stayed up all that day, all night, and the next day, and they gathered the quail who who gathered least, uh, gathered ten omers, and they spread them out. Uh, for themselves all around the camp, but when the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Eternal was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very, uh, with a very great plague. And it speaks of those because, uh, verse 34, uh, there they buried the people who had yielded to craving. They were lusting after this. It was an inordinate desire that they had on their part. Now, this certainly was food, but we find over in 1 John 2, 1 John 2, that there are several things that we as human beings crave. And John summarizes it in this very succinct statement that's very easy for us to remember. In verse 15, 1 John 2, 15, he tells us, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, that is a problem for, especially for our young people, and I'm not picking on young people. But if you're, you know, a teenager or in your early 20s, this is, this is difficult for you because this is the world you grew up in, and you don't realize any more than I did when I was your age that this world is, is, is not all that wonderful and great. I grew up with the Beatles and, and uh, Elvis Presley and, and, you know, the Beach Boys and some of these, these folks. And when I go back and I listen to some of their music, not all that good. It's not all that good. I think that sometimes even at our dances, I, don't, I better be careful because I might offend somebody here, but even at our dances, we sometimes think that the 50s and 60s music, boy, that's good music. Now, a lot of our young people like it too, but they like their music of today because whatever we grew up with is what we're used to, isn't it? 
And, and we like to think that if we go back in television, that was the good old days of television. Now, we did have Ozzie and Harriet, which was respectful of both husbands and wives and children, and it was, uh, it was pretty good. Uh, we had uh, Leave it to Beaver. Uh, there was authority there. And then My Three Sons. I think that was where there wasn't a wife involved, so that began to change things a little bit. And then... The Honeymooners. We all liked the Honeymooners, didn't we? That was Jackie Gleason. But go back and think about it. I'm not saying it wasn't funny in a certain sort of way. I enjoyed it. But what was the the form of the humor? It's what they call the jackass formula. The, the, The man is dumb and stupid, and his wife is a bit brighter than he is, and she's a little bit wittier, and she comes up with better one-liners. And that became a whole genre of, of humor to this day. And to this day, even our advertisements, you, you've seen one where, I, I don't even know what they're advertising, but uh, this person has a flat tire on the side of the road, and somebody stops, and they've got a helmet on their motorcycle or something, get off, and they fix a flat, and then she takes off her helmet. It's a woman fixing the flat for the guy. And what really, now that's possible because there are ladies who can change tires. Yes, they can. But it ought to be the men stopping helping the ladies as opposed to the other way around. And a man ought to be able to change a tire unless he's too old or, well, actually, that's that's not so easy. I remember one of the fellows when I was in Canada had a flat tire just outside the office. And he, he could fix a lot of things, but he couldn't even find the spare tire. Because it was right in the middle, underneath the console of the front of the, the, the cab. And how do you get this thing out? He couldn't even find it. I couldn't find it. I had to call somebody. And, and you have to go inside the car and crank something down, crank it down, and crank it back up. But that being said, guys should be able to take care of these things most of the time. But you've got these karate experts, women. They, boy, they can kick tail. They can take on four or five or a dozen guys all at one time. Well, ladies, that's not the real world. That really is not the real world. Guys, even wimpish guys, have a lot of upper body strength. Now, you you might know a little bit of karate, and you might be able to handle it, but I remember when I was a young fella, we'd go to the gym, we'd practice all these moves, kind of like Dr. Merrith used to talk about, and we'd practice all these things, and... We, we thought we'd do something with this one GI that was there. We'd take him on. Just It was all in fun and games. And we're going to practice all these moves. And he, he just, I forget, he just grabbed us and and uh, forget about the moves. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of like you pick you off, off the ground and <laughs> you have no leverage to do anything. Or it reminds me of one of the fellows who went to Ambassador College telling us a story about how his, his father always told him that if you, uh, you know, when you get big enough to take me on, then you can make the rules around here. So he was practicing his boxing, and he was at the place where he was thought he was tough enough to take on his father. So they went down to the basement, and they got the gloves out. And his father had a pot belly, and he had big hands, and he could hardly get the gloves on his hands. And and uh, Jim was jumping around there. He was practicing. He was you know getting ready to make all his moves, and he figured he moved so fast that his father couldn't. Couldn't do anything. And before they really got into it, his father just reached over with his foot and stepped on his foot and put all of his weight on it. And then he proceeded to beat the snot out of him. Uh, 
you know, some of these things are not real. And when, when you show all these, the women are everything and the guys are dumb, if it's a business question, you know, BBDNO, who is it? It's the woman that has the answer. And a lot of things are not the way that we think they should be. Coming out of the world where there's respect for both men and women and where children respect their parents. Since Ozzie and Harriet, it's hard to find any kind of a sitcom. I, I don't know. I've heard, what is that one, uh, Last Man Standing? I, I've never watched it, but I've heard that maybe it's okay. But I, I'd have to, I wouldn't want to endorse anything that I haven't seen. But the world, as we have it, you know, Satan is, is the god of this world. And it's not the big things that we have to worry about, the, where it's just all sex and violence. We know when it's all sex and violence. It's it's to settle things, the things that catch us off guard. The kids are smarter than the parents. The women are smarter than the men. And that sometimes that's true, but that's not the portrayal that we should have. I mean, it it still means that the husband is the head of the home or should be. And if you married this dolt, well, then it's your fault, I guess. If you Marry somebody that, that you can't look up to and respect. You should marry someone you can respect. He said, don't love the world, neither the things of the world. But verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And all this is going to pass away. It's all going to leave. Your parents' generation, your generation, whatever the, the course of the world was at that time, is passing away. It's all going to go eventually. Not that there isn't something good about every generation, but the general course of the world is going to pass away. Now, you can compare this. You can go right back to uh, the uh, the book of Genesis, the this third chapter in verse 6. I'm not going to take time to look uh, to turn back there. But remember what the woman saw. She saw that the tree was uh, good for food, lust of the flesh. It was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, and a tree to make one wise, the pride of life. And there is pride. One area that we don't focus on too often uh, during Days on Lamb Bread, but we probably should, is uh, 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 1. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 1, it says, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Now, why would we turn to this particular one? Well, it is interesting that that knowledge does puff up. Uh, when you go to university, a lot of times people think of themselves as superior to those who don't. How many times I've heard from from men who maybe they even didn't graduate from high school, but they're a mechanic or a farmer or any number of things, and they say, well, I'm not an educated man. Well, you know, I disagree with that. I disagree with that. Education comes in many different forms. And you can take a lot of university-educated people that can't take a car apart and put it back together again or do a lot of other things in this world. And we need to respect everybody who is 
you know, is, is doing something. Anybody that can do something, I don't care whether it's, you know, I better not start saying things. But I, I grew up and my parents would say, well, you're just going to become a ditch digger. Well, ditch diggers who run all the backhoes and all that sort of thing can make pretty good money these days. Or a garbage collector. You know, I, I, I love to watch garbage collectors. Not that I became one, but nevertheless, you, you watch them. And they work hard. And some of them have to use a lot of mechanical stuff. A lot of the garbage collected is by mechanics these days. But even those that have to get out and take and throw the, the trash in, a lot of times you look at those guys, they look like they're having fun. They really do. They're, they're happy-go-lucky. They're content with the job that they have. And you know what? If they weren't there, life would be a lot harder on the rest of us, wouldn't it? We need to thank those people and respect them and love them. But knowledge puffs up. Now that brings me to another thought that I wanted to bring out here today, and that is that in the church of God, we have knowledge, don't we? We have knowledge that the world simply does not have. That, that happens to be a fact. But how we handle that is very important. I was talking with somebody yesterday, just yesterday, someone that, that I know from way, way, way back a long time ago. And another Church of God group. And I, I'm not sure exactly why he, he wanted to talk to me, but the bottom line was that he, he wished we could all get along. I understand that. But he has the feeling every time he's attended one of the church, the living church of God that we think we're better than everybody else. Now, that may not be the case here, but, you know, there is a lot of that in the living church of God. There are people out there that always want to tell you, everybody, how much better we are. We're doing this. We're doing that. And how come you're not doing that? And... That's the type of thing that just drives people away. You know what we need to do? We need to be confident in who we are, what what God has called us to do, and not tell people how good we are. We just need to do the right thing. And let God take care of the rest of it. Let other groups do what they need to do, but we just need to do what we've got to do. And let God take care of the rest of it. We don't have to convince anybody else how much more work we're doing than they are. It's really important that we just do what's right. And this has to come from the heart, uh, because knowledge does puff up. And knowledge and, and the calling that God has given us. We need to be very careful of those things. I hope we can think about these things and evaluate how we come across to other people. And let God do the, the calling and the working and just be the best examples that we can possibly be. Preach the gospel. Do all those things that we should do. But let, uh, you know, let God take care of the rest. Over in, um, Exodus 32, there was another incident that Israel had a problem with. And it wasn't very long after they had left. 
was within the first year. And so Moses goes away. We all know the story, don't we? Moses goes up in the mountain, and he's there for 40 days. Boy, that's a long time. A long time to have to wait, to be patient. Well, 40 days can seem like a long time. But when the people saw that Moses delayed from coming down from the mountain, verse 1, uh, they gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. Well, it wasn't that they were totally rejecting the true God, but they, they wanted something to be able to show for it. They wanted an image that they could look to. And so, uh, as for Moses, we don't know what happened to him. And Aaron said to them, well, break off the golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Notice that the sons and daughters had earrings too. <coughs> Some have used that to say that, well, it must be okay for guys to wear earrings. Well, is it against the law of God? No. But what is it a part of? It's a part of a, a, a cultural thing that doesn't stop with earrings. Now we've got to pierce the tongue, we've got to pierce the eyebrows, we've got to pierce this, that, and a lot of other parts of the body. It is, it is the course of this world. It is a direction the world is going. And it's not a, a direction that we really want to go. It started out with homosexuals. That's where it all got started. And so, thankfully, I think that they've become commonplace enough that actually they're kind of, you don't see very many anymore on guys. You, you do see some occasionally. But most, it seems like most guys don't, don't have earrings much anymore, at least people I see. Um, same thing with the tongue stud. I, I did see one on a waitress here recently. But I think that most people are smarting up and they're, well, they've, they've moved on to tattoos. As soon as they get rid of one thing, they're going to go someplace else. Because of who is behind the world, the course of the world. He's not going to bring the world around to God's way. He's just going to shift and keep, keep it shifting so that adults and children are always at odds with one another, among other other things. So they take these earrings and he received from them from their hand, and they made a God. He says, this is your God, verse 4, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Notice they, they were still looking to the God that brought them out, but he said, this is the one, this is what he looks like. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the eternal. Yes, Time for feasting. So they rose up early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. It says rose up to play. They weren't playing tiddlywinks or something like that, but they were. You get the impression that it was a bit of licentious dancing. And the Lord said to Moses, you know, get down because they've done this. And then... Moses has to plead with God to spare the people. And he comes down off the mountain in verse 15. He takes the two tablets of the testimony that were in his hand. And notice it says the tablets were written on both sides. On the one side and on the other they were written. We always see them with everything on one side. And that's okay to as a display. But I don't know how many years I'd read this without realizing that 
they're actually written on both sides. We always think of the tablets as they have a curve, you know, at the top. We don't know what they look like exactly. We know that they're written on both sides, and the way they're always portrayed is just one side, and here's Moses walking down this way. Maybe had him under his, who knows how he was carrying him. It's okay to, I guess, portray it one way or the other, but it's just interesting, some of the details that it's difficult for us to know. At any rate, we know that that didn't work out too well for them. The New Bible Commentary Revised says this about Aaron's excuse, because remember what when, when uh, Moses asked him what he did, he said, well, it was the people. And I threw all this stuff in the fire, and it just made itself. So which is it, the people or... Or, or the calf making itself. Well, the New Bible Commentary Revised says this, Aaron's self-excusing is pathetic, as indeed every attempt to exonerate oneself from sin. The people were blamed, but the calf allegedly made itself. Aaron should have stood against them. Aaron's excuses reveal his weakness before both the people and Moses. Now in verse 25, it says, when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to the shame of, to uh, their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, well, who's on, who's on God's side? The word unrestrained is translated naked in the old King James. Uh, it's hard to know the exact word that is intended here. We, we know what the Hebrew word was, but like so many words, it has more than one meaning. So which one was it? But unrestrained seems to be a good uh, word there. It doesn't mean that they were uh, totally naked dancing around the calf. But the kind of dancing, the, uh, the kind of attire that they might have had, uh, would indicate that, that uh, Aaron had not restrained them from certain behaviors. And the New Bible Commentary Revised says this, When restraints are removed, not only do the people suffer, but God's honor is corrupted, and consequently the people must be purged. And so there were a number of people that were put to death at that time, about 3,000. When the Levites went through the camp, there must have been something about those individuals that made them stand out from the rest of them as being more evil. Sexual license was a problem for the people in Numbers 25. Numbers 25. This is where we have uh, Balaam. And Balaam taught Balak how to have the children of Israel cursed. He couldn't curse them, but he told them that if you do thus and such, well, then God will bring wrath upon them. Chapter 25, verse 1, it says, Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. And they invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Eternal may turn away from Israel." So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came 
and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel, who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So here, Moses confronting them. There's this, you know, confrontational discussion going on, and, and here's this young man who we read of leader, uh, later was the son of one of the leaders. And he's flaunting this woman that he's taking into the tent, uh, apparently for fornication. And so it says here, verse 7, When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest saw it, he rose from among the children and or the congregation and took a javelin in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. You see, he had the right to do that because God commanded Moses to put to death these people who were involved in this uh, idolatry and fornication with the women of Midian. And it says in verse 9 that uh, those who died in the plague were 24,000. The New Testament says 23,000 in one day. Apparently, some of them died after that. But 23,000 one day, 24,000 altogether, round numbers. All of them died because of what they did. Idolatry, sexual immorality. Now in Exodus, the 16th chapter, as we start to wrap this up a little bit, Exodus 16, we see a problem that Israel had. And verse 2, it says, Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And they said, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Eternal in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full and all these things. They, their memory was not very good. But they looked on the good things of the past and they were complaining because of what they had going there. Now in Numbers, the 11th chapter, we read that a little bit before, but I want to read verses 1 to 3 again. Now when the people complained, Numbers 11, 1, complained to displease the Eternal, for the Eternal heard it, and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Eternal burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. And in verse 4, they yielded to craving, and they, they complained again. We remember the fish which we ate. They were always complaining. The word that is used here so often is murmuring. Now, there's a, a place here that has puzzled people a lot. Uh, the 14th chapter of Numbers, in verse 21, Numbers 14, 21. This is after they spied out the land and they complained that they, they couldn't go in. But in verse 21, it's, well, at verse 20, Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice. The point is that so many times that God had confronted them that it was time to uh, to do something about this. Some weeks ago I started writing down some thoughts, actually outlining a sermon for today. 
But uh, Dr. Scott Winnale stole my sermon with his excellent sermon on thankfulness. Because I think that one of the main antidotes to the problems that Israel had was was thankfulness. If they had been thankful, they wouldn't have been so concerned about what they didn't have. But he gave an outstanding sermon on that, and so I realized that I, I had to come up with something different. But here's what I wrote at the time when I was working on that. This was the last day of unleavened bread. After the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea, they were free, but were they? What follows is 40 years of unhappiness. What drove that unhappiness was a lack of thankfulness. They lived lives of discontent, grumbling and complaining. We also live lives of discontent, never satisfied with what we have. Now, I did add to it, uh, when I was writing this down, that that statement is not meant to apply to everyone. But sadly, it pretty well describes probably the majority. So I'll read it again. We also live lives of discontent, never satisfied with what we have. I know that there are people who are satisfied, but as human beings, as Israelites or non-Israelites, it seems like we're more concerned about what we don't have than what we have. Continuing, and I have to believe that we would react no differently from the children of Israel who came out during the Exodus. When I first heard sermons on this subject during the Days of Unleavened Bread, I just wonder, how could those people be so stupid? I mean, after all, all these miracles that God did, and every time you turn around, they're grumbling, and they think that God can't do something. How dumb can they be? But I've, I've long gotten past that. Because I realize that we, as converted People who have God's spirit are not all that different. We do the very same things. And I say we. We. So often we grumble about the silliest minor things of life. What would we do if we went three days without water? What would we do if a hurricane came through and put us without those things And we saw things running out and saw no hope of any changes. What would we do if we go to a place of safety? The Bible does talk about that, a place, it doesn't use those terms, but Revelation, the 12th chapter. And life isn't so easy. And we don't have air conditioning. And we don't have soft beds to lay on. And there are insects buzzing around us. And their food is less than what we're used to. Are we going to be content, or would we be like the children of Israel? The antidote is exactly what Dr. Scott was talking about, being thankful. When we're thankful, we're not unhappy. It's when we're not thankful that we are unhappy. We've been called to an extreme makeover, to become a new man. We have numerous scriptures in the sermonette. He read from Colossians, I believe it was. You could read Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians, the whatever chapter that is, uh, fourth chapter. 
There are many explanations of what that new man is to be. But the point is that God has called us to an extreme makeover. We're not to just go along and be the same people we are today coming back next year. When we come back next year for the Days of Unleavened Bread, we ought to be able to say, you know, this I've made progress on. I've really made progress on this. I hope we can. I know that we have made progress. I see it in some of you that I've known for a bit of time. I don't mean since I've been here, but some that I've known from the past, or maybe some of the younger people that have come here. You see the, the, the improvement, the growth that's taking place. And I do believe we have grown, but we still have ways to go. We may have had a partial makeover, but God is seeking an extreme makeover. This day has to do with an extreme makeover. Baptism is a beginning, not the end. The real work comes after baptism. We must leave one way of life behind and take up a new way of life. And I'd like to close with Romans, the 12th chapter, verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Don't worry about finding it. You can look it up later. But it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, sacrificing who and what we are, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. If the God of the universe, the God who... Uh, you know, created all these things as we read there in Colossians, uh, the first chapter, verse 15 to 18, uh, the one who became Jesus Christ. If he, he did all that and he came down here and he gave his life for us, is this not our reasonable service to put to death our old way of life? And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of the mind, it's inward, it's not outward. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So let's seek in our lives an extreme makeover.